basically I was grown, raised in an area where everybody was pickles. So I moved down to Chambersburg, and here I am with these good people, you and you know, I walk up to you and you go, you smell like a pickle. And I'm like, yeah, I came from an area where everybody was a pickle. And I'm using that analogy to say that if I was on a farm as a little boy, that incorrigible would have been inquisitive and I would have been flipping rocks, not throwing rocks. So I just was bad in, born into a bad environment and I had no choice about it. My uh, grandparents uh, raised me and they, she did the best. My grandmother did the best she could. Um, like I said, I got into all kinds of trouble, you know, and I never knew no. And <clears throat> walking down the street, I found this rollaway bed drove with drug at home. Well, somewheres along the way, the police helped me drag it home. I convinced them I needed them to help me. And when we got there, they delivered me. Well, two hours later, they came back because the guy who owned it called up and said, I'm missing my rollaway bed. The two detectives helped me take it to my grandmother's house. So they came and retrieved it. And that was a common thing for me to do. There were no parameters in my life. Um, and because of that, when I got, you know, like I said, I was raised in a, an area where everyone smelled like a pickle. Does that make sense to you? Like, if I was born in a Mennonite family, my life would be so much different. I didn't have the choice. And, you know, when I got married the first time, the reasons I got married were different from what I think marriage is intended for. You know, and I hear some people say, well, you know, I have my good thing. Well, I destroyed my good thing before I was 15. And so I was already beat up. And so when I first came out of prison, Clyde Lehman walked up to me and he said, what do you think about marriage and divorce? I said, I've been married twice and I've ruined two perfectly good women. So I'm not getting married again. And he's like, <gasps> now he thought I meant scripturally, physically, emotionally, and mentally. I wore out from being in relationships and I was just convicted on my own. And then later on, he started talking about scripture uh, on the marriage and divorce. Marriage is one covenant. It took me a while for me to start going, you know, never thought about that. And as I started to think about it, I was convicted that I should have only been married once. But again, I came from a pickle area. In a pickle area, people had multiple relationships. Now I'm over here with you cucumbers and we have one marriage. So I blew my good thing even before I came here. That makes sense? Um, I was a very temporary person. I moved every five years. This is the longest I've been in one area my entire life. I was in prison for five years. I grew up in Drexel Hill, I'll jump around a little bit, I'm completely attention deficit. So we'll be having this very intense discussion and I'll look over and look at that squirrel. And the other day I was sitting in a restaurant and I'm talking to somebody and they're like, what are you doing? I said, I'm trying to take a picture. I put them on speakerphone. They go, what are you doing? I said, there's a squirrel outside my window and they're laughing. And there was a squirrel outside the window laying down on the table. So I took a picture of it. And I thought it was funny as can be because it's the first time I had a legitimate reason to say there's a squirrel outside that window. 
<laughs> um, anyway, um, I, you know, I did everything wrong. I didn't have any formal training. I didn't know how to handle myself. And I did the things as the world taught me to do them. I went to prison and where my values changed is when I was broken. I'm sitting in prison. I'm looking in the mirror. I can see from here down. And I started to think about all the things that I did. And the day that I was convicted of that and I fell down on the floor, the next day they put me in a cell from here up. I could see myself. And I looked in the mirror and I realized I don't like myself because all I ever did was hurt people. Hey, thank you very much. And at that point when I realized that I hurt people, I became responsible for my behavior. I was responsible before, but, you know, I became aware, self-aware that all I did was hurt people. And that's when I started to investigate, should I get married again? Should I get in another relationship? I didn't come to this expecting to be a Mennonite. I did not come out of prison expecting to be the person I was. I, came, I sat in prison for five years in the law library in prison, which is on a computer. Civil law or um, criminal law is really spotty. So you could never finish a case because you didn't have enough information. And I think they intentionally did that. So the one section that I was looking at is business law. They had a complete set of business laws. So I studied business law for five years. And I wanted to leave prison and go from the East Coast to the West Coast stealing. Um, I learned how to set up corporations. And I know how to, you know, I know a lot about building businesses. And you can build a business, deplete the money, letter of dissolution, and keep moving. And I wanted to do that. Well, God had a different purpose for me. Um, I left prison and, well, uh, let me back up here a little bit. I went to prison for uh, an abuse. I, I sexually abused a girl. And it, I'm not going to minimize it, but I did something. I went to prison. And I faced up to it. And I used to hang out with the guys in a Pagan's Motorcycle Club. And they would look at me. And Pickles looked at me like Pickles look at you. They said, we don't like what you did. And I walked up to them and I said, I don't like what I did. My chin was hitting the ground. I knew that I did the worst thing in the world. And I became broken. I looked at how I treated people. I looked at how I did things. And... I lost everything. My first wife, I left quickly. My second wife, I fell in love with her, and she left me. And our conversation in prison, she says, I want a divorce. And I said, but I don't. And that moment when she clicked the phone, I hit the floor, and I crawled around that prison for about four months, and I lost my mind. Because everything that I had prior, when I was a pickle, all my identity. Matthew had had this, that, or the other thing had gone away. And over here in prison, I was HB 2088, and my life had ended as I knew it, and I didn't know where I was going to go. I knew that I did things, I did something 
that in the neighborhood that I grew up with, I would have beat somebody up for doing. And so I, I just had to evaluate my life. Now, I'm going to back up a little further. I came, I was born in 1960. In 1982, we moved to a little town called St. Thomas, Pennsylvania. Anybody ever hear of it? There is a gentleman named David Eby. Anybody know him? Omer Eby's father. He was a member of the Washington Franklin Churches. Very frail old man. Ernest Eby. Anybody know Ernest? Well, it's his grandfather. And I'm living on an orchard because the guy was my, who was my second school teacher, second grade teacher, asked me, do you want to run a fruit farm? I'm a bricklayer. What do I know about fruit farms? Well, some events happened in my life. Somebody broke into my house. Well, no, I watched my neighbor come home. He was a drug dealer in Philadelphia. I lived in the worst neighborhood. I came home. This guy had an argument. I watched the guy shoot him. I knew the guy that killed the guy. I knew the guy that died. I went inside, closed my curtain, went up to the third floor and sat there for a few hours until the police went away. And the next morning I looked at my wife and I said, we're leaving. We were the only white, well, there were four white people in that neighborhood. Me, my wife, my son were three of them. <laughs> my neighbor was the other one. And I said, that's it. It was in the height of crack, the crack cocaine epidemic. So I decided I was gonna leave. I moved to this orchard where my second school teacher, second grade teacher was running and I moved into the farm and I met this guy named David and he was out there picking apples and and there was something about the discussions that we were having and he looked at he walked up to me one time and you know out of the blue how would you react to this story where would you spell it where would you spend eternity now being a street punk from Philadelphia when he asked me he I didn't hear I love you. I'm concerned about your soul. I come from the streets. What he was going is, you, where are you going to go? I heard it crooked. I have a hearing problem. In fact, even to today, I'm talking to Lamar Shawwater, and he said, mostly, he used the term mostly. And I said, unfortunately, I don't understand what you're saying. Define a term. Mostly to me, sounds like 41 to 49%. He said, no, I'm saying 98%. I said, but I don't hear it the way you're saying it because I have a hearing problem. And David did the same thing. He asked me, where was I going to go when I died? And my response was, why do you care if I don't? And that's how I felt. But in this instant of him, we were picking apples and he's asking me this question. I had three pistols on me and I had a knife. And I'm thinking, do I punch him? Do I stab him or do I shoot him? Never in my world would I have thought, listen to him. And that's what happened. And that, that question he asked me when I was in prison and I'm, laying, I'm sitting on a bed, I thought about it 28 years later. And I fell and I hit the floor and I did the only thing I knew how to do. I can't, you can help. To me, that was like, you know, I hear some people praying like for hours. That to me was praying for hours because I never uttered them kind of things before. I didn't know what I was saying, but I knew I was broken. I pushed everybody away. I lost everything that I had. 
I had no future, and I was facing two and a half to ten years in prison. And I deserved that time. But during... Now, I'm backing up from here to come back here. I grew up in home in Philadelphia. It was called St. Gabriel's Hall. I said I was incorrigible. In Philadelphia in the 60s, if you were incorrigible, they found a way to medically maintain you. It was called dexedrine, stelazine, thorazine. So they had me on all these drugs, and that wasn't working. And I kept getting in trouble. I'm starting fires, and there was a reason I started fires, and my grandmother didn't know what to do with me. So she took me to, well, I was taken to court, and they made me a ward of the state. Now, the reason I was starting fires is some guy down the street said, come here, boy, sit in the car, look at this book, drink this. And I know that I started feeling funny. He threw a book, first time I ever seen pornography, threw a book and I opened it and my eyes opened. And that was the beginning of a downward slide in my life from the time I was six and a half. That went on until... 48 years old. And in everything in my life was defined. See, what that guy did to me, he shouldn't have done. And so I found out that if I could help him finish what he needed quickly, performance-based person, then it would stop. And I knew how to stop the pain. And there was all kinds of questions going on in my head. What he's doing to me made some... It just, it caused a whole lot of conflict. I'm sitting there as a little boy wondering, is there something wrong with me? Because I have a homosexual who's giving me attention. Am I homosexual? I was all confused about everything. Anybody, y'all have been teenagers before. You remember that pimple of the head you had when you were a teenager? Imagine going through that with all this other stuff going on. You just get confused. And I didn't know what to do. So... I learned how to hit people. <laughs> and I learned how to hit people really well. But that didn't really solve the problem. So later on, I learned how to take drugs and alcohol. And the drugs and alcohol temporarily stopped what was going on. The fire in my head. Well, that was the answer to the problem. But later on, at 21 years old, I stopped taking the answer. Guess what? I still had the problem. And at that point, if I had found Jesus Christ, or if I found a group of people, maybe things would have been different, but they weren't. So I struggled emotionally, socially, and mentally for many years, and I kept going down a downward corkscrew called pornography, and it was getting tighter and tighter. Everything in my life was defined by that. And when I met my wife... You know, if you ever taken a, a, a soda bottle and tried to look through it, 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 it makes everything unreal. Well, that's how my, my life was with my wife. It was unreal because I was always looking at it through what was shown to me in these pages. And it distorted my values and it distorted the sense of whatever. And it destroyed. That's why I said my good thing was destroyed early. And I didn't know the difference. And I was doing what everybody else did. That doesn't make it right. It's just what happened to me. 
Oh, I don't mean to spend a lot of time on it, and I'm trying to find a nice way to describe it without being too crude. But I was messed up. And I walked around hurt and angry for a long period of time. And all I did was hurt other people, and I made other people mad. And when David asked me, where would you spend eternity? I had a choice, listen or hurt him. And I chose to listen. And in 28 years from the day he talked to me, my life changed when I fell in prison and I cried out and said, this isn't working. I need some help. And from that day to here, my life has vastly changed. I left prison and like I said, I wanted to go from coast to coast, and I didn't. I didn't intend to come to a church. I didn't intend to be a member. I wanted to. My intentions were there. But if I didn't rely on a power, if I didn't rely on God, I would have went. And, and I heard him dealing with me. And there was a battle inside me all the time because here I am trying to do the right thing, I'm trying to pray with people on the street. And I at some point, there's a verse that says, who builds a tower and doesn't count the cost? And I was walking over a bridge and I was starting to count the cost. And I realized that everything I have had to go away. All the people that I used to be around had to go away. And I didn't like the results. So I was walking over a bridge at that point to go rent a building uh, we called it the room, or at that time it was the homeless depot. I opened a room in Chambersburg for homeless people to come and sit because I was lonely. I wanted people to be around, so I wanted to bring people like me, and we would sit around and drink coffee and talk, and I didn't know what we were going to do. And I was going to do this, and I got scared, and I turned around and walked away. And... I was on a bridge and I walked 15 steps, but every step that I took, I could hear God saying, you know where this is going. You know where you're going to end up. You know the outcome of this. So about 15 steps from the center of the bridge, I turned around and said, I'm going to do it. And I turned around and I walked in and rented the building. And that's the day I decided to be what's considered a kingdom-focused Christian. Up until that point, I was ready to give it up because it was it's difficult. I'm not like you. Did you figure that one out? I don't have the lineage. I can sit here and tell you all the differences. But in that moment, before I made that decision, all them differences were echoing. I was involved in a little church with a guy named Pastor Randy Scottick. At some point, Pastor Andy was telling me things. Now, this is not a Mennonite. This is me coming out of prison and hanging with people like me in a room like me. So I opened this room, and I was going to his church, and I was passing by Chambersburg Christian Fellowship. And I seen Bailey's going. Now, I forgot to tell you that I met the River Brethren when I came to Chambersburg. And there was something about the light in their eyes. And what I recognized is the women had bailings. So I see this girl, I'm like, looking at her, like, hey, I'll go there next week. So I walked to Pastor Andy's church. And Pastor Andy would tell me things like, I know what God sounds like. 
I, oh, no, excuse me. I know what God's voice sounds like. And I said, yeah, what's it sound like? He says, it sounds like my own. And I said, you know what? Schizophrenics tell me the same thing. <laughs> so he scared me. So one day I walked into the church and I was talking to somebody and I would go there for 20, 25 minutes and walk up to Pastor Andy's church. Now, I'm still running this room that we call the Homeless Depot. Every derelict in town was in there with me. <laughs> and I, yeah, I had no idea what I was doing. But I know I needed a community. So I gathered all these people that looked like me. And I started to go, Chambers, go to Chambersburg Christian Fellowship. And he started saying, well, Clyde Lehman came up to me and he said, you can stay for the whole service. Nobody ever asked me to come. In fact, nobody ever asked me to stay. Up until this point, most of the time when I went to parties, they would throw me out and the person that invited me. I was off the hook. I would go in there and just disrupt and knock things over and get into fights and get drunk and fall down. People got tired of them behaviors. Now, I'm coming to this Mennonite church and they're like, well, we want you to stay. So I told them where I want, what happened to me, how I got in prison, and my life was different. And Conrad Stauffer looked at me and he says, huh, would you like to come to my house for lunch? What? I just told you I went to prison for this. And you're inviting me to your house? Why? And it was the kindness that they showed me that showed or gave me a lifeline. I've been attending Chambersburg Christian Fellowship, for, and, and I get mixed up because it was like 2011 when I came out. And I st they started 10 years ago, and I, I showed up about three to four months after they started. And I've been there ever since. Now, don't, don't take it like this is easy, greasy, and everything goes fine because I'm different and they are too. And we have our differences. But the reality is what they taught me is submission to a brotherhood. We hear the voice of Christ in what? The brotherhood. <gasps> oh. And if we hear that brotherhood and we submit to it, then we become accountable. Now, I've never been accountable in my life. I went somewhere as recently and somebody, I was talking to them and I'm discussing something. They went, you've really become a Mennonite. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I look at a situation so de deeply. I look at both sides so deeply that I become cross-eyed in the situation because I want to make sure I'm doing the right thing. And I criticize other people for it. And I have the same talent that they showed me. But it's a good thing. And I, my life, I've come to, you know, I'm 63 years old, and I've come to a belief that man is supposed to submit. And whether you submit to a brotherhood, or you submit to a prison system, or you submit to a drug addiction, or you submit to a military addiction, you're going to submit one way or another. And you're going to be accountable for what you did. But men do best when they submit. So anyway... I walked into the church, I joined the church, and I've been there ever since. And I, you know, I go places, I get mad at them, I go places like everybody. Hear God, and I don't hear his voice. And then I show up at another place and I go, hear God, and I don't hear a voice. 
So I'm, I'm pretty convinced that he wants me to stay right where I'm at. And I'll, I'll put my part in there for now. But I think he wants me where I'm at for a reason. I, I sometimes get lost in that reason because I'm so much different than anybody else. And then you hear things like, oh, we need you. Yeah, you need me for what, a target? <laughs> you know, because what they're telling me and how I perceive it are two different things. Now, they're not doing anything wrong. Don't take it that I'm saying they're doing anything wrong. This is part of me, chafe, that Jesus, or excuse me, that God is clarifying me. They say you're like a rock when you first become a real uh, messed up rock and then you they refine you well i'm in the refining process the unfortunate thing i'm old enough and stubborn enough that i just don't want to change certain things and so it takes me a little longer to lose some of that chafe i love my brothers and i said i've been at one place for more than five years i am now seeing people that that this big get married and i'm like I never watched that before. I never paid attention. I never stayed in one place long enough. And I never had connections. Okay. I started out in Chambersburg with the room. What we called it, like I said, it was homeless people. I called it the homeless depot. At one point, there was a family that came in. We had a marriage, and we called it a homeless depot marriage. At some point, we changed the name to the Queen Street Mission. And now it's affectionately called The Room. The Room is just a place where, even though it doesn't make sense, I have to go and apply myself and listen to people that aren't applying themselves. And in a commerce-based ministry, I'll put two in and get how many out? The Room is not like that. The Room is you put a lot in and you get nothing out. And it doesn't matter what they do or don't do. It's how my heart is refined by doing it day in and day out. Does that make any sense? Um, There's a really uh, dumb... Well, there's a story I talk about David Eby. This is what he taught me. Um, David Eby was at the... That's your granddaddy somehow. I don't know how. You really... Um, David showed me that there are two types of planting seeds. There's the new no-till method where you just put the seed, you get out of there, you don't disrupt the soil, or you throw the chisel plow in, you go 18 inches. And how many of you are farmers? Okay. When you throw a chisel plow into a, in the ground, limestone, what happens? You either break the equipment, you flip the equipment, you can get killed doing it if you're running too fast. So what we're supposed to do, this is my interpretation, is we're supposed to dig deep, flip that soil, and help people see what's going on in their lives. That's what the room is, okay? We're flipping soil, and it's hard work. It has no benefits. So you do it and do it and do it and do it, and nothing really changes. But David flipped the soil, this is what he, and I know I'm getting a little ahead of myself. I'm sorry. But he showed me that you're supposed to dig deep. And when you're done turning the soil over, you're supposed to take the most expensive seed and then turn your back and walk away because it's not for you to see. And that's not a commerce-based ministry. 
Um, the no-till method is so much easier. You leave the dirt, you leave the rocks, and you just plant around them and hope something good will come from it. Now, you do receive benefits from it. Not everybody's into street ministry, but I am. And the room taught me that I had problems. So I started it because I was like these guys. But now I'm over here with these cucumbers, and I'm starting to hang with them. And these cucumbers called Chambers for a Christian Fellowship are looking at me going, you smell like a pickle. And I'm like, ah, that's because I came from a ground of pickles. And at some point, I became more like my church brothers than I did these people. But I have social equity in this community. I got involved in prison ministry again because, I, because uh, quite honest, I'm more comfortable in a prison than I am in a church. Because I know that area. I can just go hang out and talk to people. Yesterday we had a picnic. We call it formal former formal felons. We had 40 people from all over the state come together and we're all ex-convicts and we're free. And we're free behind Jesus Christ. Every single one of us had this experience in prison when we realized our brokenness. Anybody here have been truly broken in their life? Or did you... And, and, and don't take me wrong. People who think they're broken can explain what it's like when you're truly broken. You just, there's no words. You just know there's no way out. And when you're completely broken, the only thing you can do is to cry out. You can't spend anything for it. You can't snort anything for it. You can't drink anything for it. You just cry out. You say, this isn't working. My life stinks. Help. There's a principle called the Matthew principle. I don't know if any of you have heard of it. The more good you do, the more good you'll receive. It's this modern day thing. And the guy was telling me, and I said, that sounds like a prosperity gospel to me, which he frowned his lip and looked at me funny. I said, most of the people that I know are in a pit and they're climbing up a, a poly rope. And it's mud and they're losing traction and they're looking for a pinch of sand just to get some traction to get up. Now, he was explaining as the more good you do because he was able to start a business. His family gave him a farm. His grandparents and his family, and they're all from this cucumber jar. They had a nice life. And so what the grandparents did gave him the ability to do what he's doing. I don't come from that life. I'm starting cold. I have nothing. And it's it's a struggle. And I'm not saying one way is better than another. But when you have somebody giving you a prosperity gospel, it makes you mad. <laughs> I got mad. And what do I do when I get mad? I get busy. I'm not somebody that will go in and pray with you about something. But certainly, if you have a problem, give me a six-inch chisel, I'll tear the house down for you. I would rather put my arm and push into it with you. I have a hard time praying, but I have a really easy time getting behind somebody and working with them. Because during that work, during that work time, I get to talk to people. When we started the room, we were rebuilding this place. We had to rebuild it. When, when I opened it, there was plywood on the windows and we pulled it off and 
three big windows. And I put computers in there. And the guy who owns it said, what if somebody steals your computers? God provided these. He'll provide more. And he was like, what? He couldn't understand that. But the building had fallen apart. And we were rebuilding it piece by piece. In fact, I asked him if I could take over the room at a cheap rent. But I promise you, I will get it code compliant. And we did four years later. I had no money. In fact, it was the, that was the best $50,000 I never had. <laughs> Somehow it came around. When I fell into God's purpose, things just happened. And me and Michael Stolfus would be working and somebody would come in and they had a problem and we would put the tools down and we would spend time with people because the mission of the people is more important than the job. And like right, I'll tie that in later on. We have a halfway house right now and we are making money. And now everybody's concerned, will we have enough money? And I said, hold on, we didn't start worrying about money. We started out finding tasks and the tasks were more important with the men and the money. Well, no, no, we got to, no, 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 no. Let's not reverse it. There's a story about the talent. And I know I'm all over the place. I'm sorry about it. It's just how I am. The talent, God gave me a talent. I was, when COVID hit, I'm sitting there and I get, I somehow found somebody who's going to give me 700 gallons of milk the next day. I woke up at six o'clock the next morning. What did I just do? So I called the guy and they said, 700 gallons of milk. He said, yeah, come on over tonight. We'll give it to you. I went there and I got 588 gallons of milk. I'm driving down the street with a truck that somebody gave me. And, and we fixed it up with the money I don't have. And we started giving it to people that needed it. Now, I could have buried that talent. Instead, what I did is I invested it in the kingdom. The next week I had 2,000 gallons of milk. And the week after that I had 4,000 gallons of milk for 18 months. COVID, they opened up the pipe. It was, and what happened is buttermilk was more, made more money than milk. So they were throwing away the byproduct and keeping, skimming off the butter fat and sending that to people because you could store and freeze that. But the milk you had to get rid of. Well, what their way was my blessing. And so I started handing out milk. And then I started working with one group of people and then seven groups of people. And then we're in two states and then we're in seven states. Somewhere along the line, somebody said, hey, do you want a truck of food? Yeah, sure. So here I am on the phone and I've got food coming at 38,000 pounds per truckload. And I'm getting multiple truckloads a week. Well, we ended up handing out... Uh, 110 million pounds of food and a million gallons of milk in 18 months. I barely could afford my phone bill. At one point, we had five tractor trailers, refrigerators running, and we're putting a thousand to two thousand gallon uh, dollars worth of fuel in them every week to keep things cold. Now I got people call me saying, well, I got this load and it's it, it, it's rotten. I need to get rid of it. And I'm like, hey, I know a pig farmer. Take it over there. Everybody here, blessings of hope. I started handling 
one guy, seven states, 35 loads a week for 18 months. And I don't know how I did it. I'm a highly attention deficit and I'm a attention deficit person. But for some reason, it fit right into my groove and I was able to handle this. It went away. And I'm like, that was the best 18 months. That was my BS service. I didn't get paid to do Well, actually, I was working for a guy and they gave me uh, unemployment. So I got paid for the whole time I was doing this and I was handing out food at an alarming rate. And I was wearing shoes like this in a reefer truck, moving, moving it, moving the milk and stuff. I caught COVID twice and I just kept working. And somehow I convinced the people in my halfway house to help me give it away. And, you know, we were handing out stuff in Virginia, West Virginia, Ohio, <laughs> Pennsylvania, California, and Texas. And I don't even know where it all came from. I have people still calling me up say, hey, that was a lot of fun. How did we do it? And I'm like, I don't know. It wasn't me. There's, this, there's Jesus. God talked about sending the helper. I was too dumb to know how to ask the helper. But I was dumb enough that Jesus just sent the helper. And it worked out. And I was pliable enough just to keep moving. Well, after that went away, I had uh, went to my church brothers and I said, I want to open a halfway house. And conservative groups, how do they handle something like that? Got to go away for a while and think about it and wait for the spirit. I learned it during that period of time when people say, I'll pray about it. You should ask them how long because I was becoming very impatient. Well, I got myself in a lot of trouble during that period of time because somebody would say, I'll pray about it. And I'm like, no, you won't. Just say no. <laughs> but <coughs> somehow my church brother went and he was thinking about it. Six months into it, I went back and I said, you know, unfortunately, I'm waiting for you to make an answer. You're waiting to hear God. I'm becoming a little restless. What do we do? Can I try to do this organically? Yeah, go ahead. Now, I think he was saying, this is my interpretation, you'll never get it done. Well, I made 10 phone calls and I had the money for one year. And we opened the place. And I got a picture of me and him signing the lease. Now, when I walked into the real estate place, my reputation was so bad. This lady who was doing it went, <gasps> and she ran over to this guy and who's in, in Shippensburg. And she was like, do you know who that is? And he said, yeah, I understand. He's been to prison. He wasn't a nice guy, but he deserves a chance. We signed a lease. They wouldn't have signed it with me, but they signed it with my church brothers. I needed some creds. Anyway, that lady called me about a year and a half ago, and she said, I want to write an article because I've never seen a transformation of a person like yours. I was a gangster, criminal, and now I'm renting from her, and she trusts me. And it was nothing that I did. It's just listening to my church brothers and following what God's telling me to do. That halfway house is still going. It's five years later. It's called Harkin House Ministry. I have 10 clients, and it's based on the same things that you taught me to be in a church. I needed to become what? Accountable? 
and submitted. So I got convicts just like me. I'm more comfortable with them. I want them to change. What are the two behaviors I work on? Accountability and submission. Now, if I can help them become accountable to each other and learn to submit to each other, and I help them find their brokenness, and they cry out to the Lord, what are those two behaviors? It funnels them into a church. Now, should I get them to suit up and show up? Or should I let them find where the Holy Spirit calls them? We're not an in-reach, we're an outreach. An in-reach is a principle that you start for people outside your community. Then you go, oh, well, we need it more. We started out with convicts, we're staying there. I have 10 guys in my halfway house. And at some point, I had to come up with funding for this. You ever ask the Mennonite to raise funds for you? <laughs> it doesn't happen very well because they don't know how to ask people. Now, if I proposed to do an auction, oh, that would have worked. But I don't know anything about an auction. So I asked my church brothers in my, my board of directors, help me raise funds. And again, they were praying about it. And so this friend of mine, he said, hey, I got this stuff. You want to buy a load? I reached in my pocket, pulled the first, first $4,000 out. I bought a truckload of Denton Bent. Amazon, Granger, Ferguson, whatever I can get. That time I bought something called Granger and it went like that. At some point I realized, hey, there's a business in this. So I went to a guy who's one of my board of directors and he's a Mennonite. And I said, hey, I want to bring you stuff so you can sell. What's he say to me? You'll never be able to bring me enough. Oh, yeah. I have that crooked, crooked commerce. Right now we in the last two years have put, I, I estimated about a million dollars that will come down in the next few years. Now that's up here. That's not in hand. We have operated with zero debt. We bought trucks. We've done all kinds of other things. We have zero debt. We have a residual coming in and it's enough to funnel the, or fund the halfway house. We don't have a great bun, bunch of money. So when I started buying this stuff, all these guys were coming, and I know it sounds like I'm beating up on the Mennonites. That's who I'm with. So they come up to me, and they're like, where's it coming from? And I go, same thing I told them when I was doing the food. It's manna from heaven. Oh, where are you getting from? They said, 81's right there, and I got your trucks. <laughs> <laughs> they want to hear that, but they don't want to hear the truth. So we've been doing this for... Two years. I started out, I realized that if I can pay for the load and make a profit margin of 2500 per load with 100 loads in one year, that's how much? A quarter of a million. Well, we're doing about, we've done about 350 loads. Due to numbers, that's about three quarters of a million. And instead of selling it right away, I put it. To the guy who said, no, you can't bring me enough. I went to a trucking company, another Mennonite, and I said, we need your help. <laughs> oh, yeah? Okay. We're in the number, we're within the first, we're one of the top 10 people that get them to do work for us. And 
It's all because somebody said you can't do it. And I have a negative commerce. Anybody in here like that? You tell me I you can't do it. No, I'll do it. Anybody else like that? Nah. Yeah, you too. That's what happened. They said you can't. And somehow I fixed it. But it's not me. If I stand up here and tell you I did this, then I'm stealing. I'm a buffoon left to my own devices. I believe the helper has really come in and he's given me the ability to sound good look good or well it might be a little much he's given me the ability to sound good and figure out something called fractional mathematics i buy something for this much and i can look at a truckload and know how many pieces are in there and how much i'm going to make we've hit it out of the box repetitively cost of load cost 2500 there's some loads that we've done just base, and then there's other loads we did 10 times that much. So we've done well. Harkin House is growing because I'm trying to pull me out of it. We just were, we're working on a stationery, and my name, managing director, my phone number, and my email. And I said, you know what, Ray? It's time for me to pull my name off, off of it. Let's use this email, and let's put the house's phone number um, for the office. I realize that a visionary that starts something, if he doesn't pass it on, it dies when he dies. Well, I'm very, very, I'm working very, very hard to get my Mennonite board to own this thing. And they know, they're, they're beginning to, but I'm so much different than them. And I'm too quick and I have 50 ideas and they don't, they, oh, they feel overwhelmed. But somehow I'm engaging them to where they take it. And I'm getting the men to take it and I'm trying to pull me out. There was that song we were singing, just, you know, I'm looking for the picture. So I, everything in my world's a picture. <laughs> Come gracious spirit. I love this. It says, lead us to God our final rest, to be with him forever blessed. And that's where I'm heading. I started a few things through the power of Christ, but I'm looking for my eternal reward. Now, that, that question that David asked me, where will I spend eternity? I think I can answer better today than I could then. And what he gave me is a, gave me the ability to check out my behavior and to change myself before too long. I grew up with about 53 people and there's two of us still alive. And Jack Collins is in prison for a murder. The other guy that was living, Mark Conway, had 15 bodies. He just died in federal prison and I'm on the street. And it's not because I'm smart. It's nothing, nothing like that. But if you change from your cucumbers you start hanging, no, excuse me, if you change from your pickle juice and you come over with the cucumbers and you hang with cucumbers or people like yourself, your life will change. So I hear this argument about culture, Mennonite culture. We should be free and be Jesus. We don't need the culture. I don't like that. I think that Christianity... The Mennonites or the Anabaptists, however you want to put it, have found a way to couple a culture that leads from a Christian lifestyle. 
and the two of them are good. I really love the culture that I'm in. Do I understand it all? Nah. Will I ever fit completely in? Nah. But there's one thing that it's done. It's changed my eternal outlook because I hung out with a bunch of people that don't make any sense to me and they put up with me. It's not the other way around. I came here thinking, oh, I can change these people. They need my help. Arrogant. And I realized they don't need my help. I need theirs. So I stand here tonight because I don't know it all. Okay, anybody ever hear of something called strength of strength? I was sitting in my apartment. COVID hit. And I looked out my window. Look at my phone. I'm looking out my window and I see Satan doing push-ups and I'm in here getting weak. This is hurting me. I need help. So I called everybody I knew. And if you're a lone wolf and you're calling 500 people and you hear 400 no's, well, excuse me, 499 no's, what do you do? <laughs> you keep pushing ahead. Because my I needed something to keep me going. I convinced enough people that we went on for three months every, every day, six o'clock in the morning, talking to each other, encouraging each other. And at some point, I, I was working with the halfway house and building business, and I had to give something up. So I called Brian, or I called Glenn Martin up in uh, Granby, Massachusetts, and I said, do you want this thing? He said, yeah. And they took it, and they changed it to what it is today. But I needed it first. The room for the homeless depot, I needed community first, so I had to build it for myself. I needed to change my life from the conviction that I had. So I started Hiding House. I was falling apart spiritually, so I started Strength to Strength. And I'm no different than anybody else. All of us know what we need, but we're too afraid to do something out of the ordinary because our culture is very, very orderly. 729, we better get to singing. Sometimes you have to show up 10 minutes late and try something different to encourage people. And so that's the one thing that I do repetitively. I go to church with great people. Six months ago, I might not have felt that way. Two years ago, I would have felt that way. But if I had listened to the whimsical things that go on in the world, how I feel at that moment. Remember 729? Had I always just paid attention to the feelings, I wouldn't be here. What I did is I just bared, I, I bared, I just looked down and kept pushing into it. I put my shoulder into it. And I think I'm better because I chose to ply into my brothers. They're not better because I did. We got a good brotherhood up there. And I, I don't know what else to say. I, I'm working with, um, <laughs> anybody know Steve uh, Eversold? Yeah. Uh, he showed me something about 
uh, an app for churches. Merle Her. Merle's a friend of mine. I called him up and I, and well, he came to my group and I wasn't even paying attention. I'm buying things. I'm listening to him. But I walked away from that and he showed me something. I seen a problem and instead of going what I used to do, come on, let's go. We got to hurry. Let's get it done. I did what he was, he told me to do. I called up a bunch of people and I said, what would you do with that if you've seen the same problem? And I sat back and I listened to these guys. There are a lot of unaffiliated churches and standards are all over the place. And if you go to, if you try to put them all in one place so that people who are looking for kingdom focused churches, you have various levels of responsibility and how you should do this. Well, that's what I asked the guys about. I said, how come I'm getting people call me from California? Where's the church in California? I'm like, I don't know. So I call 15 people and finally a week later I find out they're making an app to where anybody in the United States or the world, I think, I'm not sure because I'm not involved. I just gave it to them and they're doing it. We'll be able to find a kingdom fellowship or a kingdom church anywhere, which excites me because how many of us have been out there and we don't know where to go and we take a chance? And that's scary because if I go into a place that where they're showing me sh bright, shiny spoons, anybody ever fish? A, a spoon or a spinner is something that catches your attention by flashing. Well, so many other churches that I go to seem really flashy. I want to stay in the group that I found. It's the question I was asking you. How are you going to stay young and old? How are we going to keep that flashy thing from keeping or pulling us out? Because it's really easy to start focusing on what we don't have and lose, lose the sight of what we do have. I don't know. I'm convinced that this is the way for me, and I'm convinced it's a way to convert people into out of prison. And so I'm spending the rest of the days that I have trying to sit down with people and say, yep, let me talk to you about Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what he did for me. And I think if I can do it a few times, maybe I'll find someone else like me. Thank you. I don't know what else to say. Any questions, critiques, rocks, bottles, vegetables? Do I talk long enough? I'm excited about being a member of a Mennonite church. You know, as much as I didn't want to say it, I'm a Mennonite. And I might say it this way, I'm Swiss brethren. <laughs> because that's what we are, Swiss brethren up there. But the matter of fact is, I'm a member of a Mennonite church. And if you see my family, where they're at, to where I'm at, you would see the, the beginning of the next generation. It takes one generation to leave the culture. It takes three generations to bring a culture or bring a family into the culture. Don't let go too quick. Hold on. Swim upstream. And I see so many young people going, ah, I'm harmed. Who is it? Steve Stutzman said that. Stutzman. I think I'm saying it right. Told me I had to pray out the Mennonite guilt. Like, dude, I didn't grow up Mennonite. Get away from me. 
you know, but there's a there's a whole bunch of people that are trying to fix some of the things that have happened in the plain churches. It's not fixed that way. It's fixed by us talking to each other. And yes, there is abuse. I, you know, there's a lot of churches. Everybody has drive and nobody has reverse. I don't know. Somehow we're going to have to pull it together. But if we read the Bible towards the end time, this isn't going to work because we're going to fall apart. We already know the, what's going to happen, but we got to hang on for a little bit longer. That's my encouragement to the young people. Thank you.